Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, friends. It's your captain here, Alex. I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mum No Hands. I'm usually joined by my stoker, Jenny, the director of the London Bike Kitchen, but she's busy fixing bikes. So please enjoy this live panel recording of our transcontinental debrief held at Look Mum No Hands on Wednesday, the 19th of September. Please enjoy. Okay, we're going to get started now. I'm Laura, and this is the Transcontinental Debrief for the race that happened this year, 2018. Um, I'm just going to let everybody introduce themselves really quickly before we get started. Hi, I'm V. I did the race last year. I um, haven't ridden my bike again since, really. But um, it's really nice to come back here and, I guess, remember how amazing cycling is. <laughs> Hi, I'm Meg. I, all, I did the race this year. I haven't really ridden my bike since either, possibly because I broke it on the way home. But yeah, it's nice to be here. Hi, I'm Rory. I'm one of the organizers for the Transcontinental Race, and I uh, took part in this in 2016. I'm uh, Will. I'm another competitor from last year, and I have ridden my bike quite a lot since. Hi, I'm Keith. I work here, coincidentally, so, and um, I rode this year, so... So we're just going to start with Rory. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about this year's race, where the checkpoints were, sort of average distance that riders covered, and just sort of a little, I'm sure most people know what Transcontinental is who are here, but just sort of a little overview of the race. So for people who don't know, the Transcontinental is the definitive self-supported 4,000 kilometer race across Europe. Um, it's been going for um, six years um, and started off when our founder, Mike Hall, wanted to put something on for people to experience what he did when he cycled around the world. Um, so set off in London and finished in Istanbul, and that was the first race. There was a couple of checkpoints. Um, since then, we've um, had the same um, kind of setup uh, about it being really self-supported, it being an undefined route, uh, and having some really incredible checkpoints for people to go and experience and enjoy. Um, and the progression across Europe is really important. Um, the kind of degradation of man across Europe towards the Balkans is always good, man and woman. Um, so this year we um, set off in Gerensbergen and we had four checkpoints leading us to the finish in Greece in Meteora. The first checkpoint was in Austria, um, Blunder House Pass, I'm sure someone can pronounce it better than me. Um, then it was in Slovenia, uh, the Magart, 
which looked incredible, and I think everyone had a really good time there this year, although it was really, really tough. Uh, then we, for the first time in our history, uh, we ventured over to Poland, um, and then came back, and again, uh, for the first time in our history, we were in Bosnia, and had a uh, incredible climb up to a ski pass that was all gravel, and apparently everyone loved it, and no one swore on the way up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the views were amazing, but it was fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> And then finished in Emiroa. The uh, total distance, I think, from looking at everyone's rides, was around about 3.850. I'm sure someone will correct me if I was wrong. Um, and people varied. So some people did, um, if you look at James, he did incredible mileage every day. Um, and then if you look at Neil, at the other end of the spectrum, I think his average was about 100 kilometers a day. So uh, we have a breadth of people that come in. Uh, and undertake the race, and they do it for very different reasons. Um, but I think everyone will agree it's uh, quite a life-defining um, adventure. So I think you touched on something in that, which is probably a good place for us to start, and that's that people come into these races for all kinds of different reasons. Um, it usually is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity or adventure, but I think the things that lead people to decide that they want to take on something as crazy as this are quite interesting. Um, so I guess that's my first question to everyone. Why did you decide you wanted to take part? Um, so I decided to take part mainly because I'm quite scared of doing things on my own. So I thought I wanted to set myself a challenge to ride across Europe. I've kind of wanted to do it for a while, but never, never found anyone to do it with. Um, and then I think... I think it was probably Emily Chappell a few years ago who kind of drew my kind of eyes to bikepacking. Um, I was lucky enough to meet some fast, fantastic people, I think a couple of years ago, doing the Torino Nice Rally. Um, so I did that, and the guys taught me how to bikepack. I turned up for a gravel ride on a road bike. Um, I bought all the biggest Apertura kit, thinking I needed to pack loads of stuff in there. Uh, couldn't fit anything in. Um, so basically, it was so big, it was rubbing on my whole bike. <laughs> Um, so the guy, I was at, I work in the cycling industry, so I'm really lucky to be kind of around everyone. So I was at Eurobike and the guys quickly sorted me out. They put thick, thick tires on my bike and helped me and get to get smaller bike packs. So, um, I think I learned the ropes from, uh, James Olsen from Evans, who's absolutely fantastic. Um, and from there it kind of just intrigued me. I love to like travel. I love to be adventurous, but I was scared. So I thought you might as well just chuck yourself in the deep end and just have a go. <laughs> Um, and I think I just did it as the best thing I've ever done. Um, I think you just learn. Like I, I quite like chucking myself in deep end. So I just learn on on the way. I think everyone else was like they knew where they were going. <laughs> they didn't get lost. I I just kept getting lost. My bike kept breaking. Um, I think after a while, I just I followed James Hayden's route. I think because I was at checkpoint two whilst he had finished. <laughs> so I thought fuck this and just downloaded a Strava route and followed him to the end. <laughs> Um, so, like, for me, it was such an amazing experience, and it's something I do over time and time again. So I think I did it because I was scared, um, and I just wanted to, like, break those boundaries. <laughs> um, for me, it started, I think it was, like, an uh, autumn time, and I was feeling a bit meh coming home from work. I thought, what can I do to make things interesting? So then I entered the Transatlantic Way one night, and then I thought a couple of months passed, and I thought, well, that wouldn't be enough, like, 2000 uh, kilometers around Ireland, so why don't I try and en enter the Transcontinental in the same year? And then maybe I won't get in. I forgot that I w yes. <laughs> so I got in and then I was like, well, why don't I just do both and see what I can do? And 
just keep cycling. So I'd never been part of a cycling club. I'd never really done anything like that. But I just knew that I was quite bloody minded and could probably just keep going. Um, if there was a beer at the end of each day, I, that would probably motivate me. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? If my bike breaks, I'll get to have a cycle tour in Europe. Yeah. So, yeah, just had a go. So my story started a little bit. I'm going to blame V um, because uh came in a little bit for the bike setup, which is not my fault. It kept breaking, by the way. Um, and then I kind of sort of realized that, you know, it wasn't, uh, you didn't have to be sort of at the top of the cycling world. It's one of those things I didn't think you could actually enter as just a normal cyclist. Um, and then I put the application in as a bet with one of the other mechanics, Dave here, uh, neither of us thought we would get in. Um, and I was sat in the pub on a Sunday with my girlfriend, probably the heaviest I've been in my life. Hadn't been riding for ages, and then uh, opened an email, uh, cancelled Sunday lunch, um, made that my last Guinness for four months, and then uh, yeah, proceeded to panic train from there on in. Um, again, because I work in the cycle trade, it's, I was quite lucky to be able to sort of call on lots of people's advice and help. You know, I've had people that finish way at the back and people that finished way at the front telling me how their experiences went, and. Um, they're still similar experiences in that, you know, you can, you don't have to be the winner of Transcon to have it be a really amazing experience. So, yeah, it's kind of, uh, come back now, back in normal life, but it's definitely changed a lot of how I look at how I cycle in general. So I think for, for me, it was just, it was kind of a little bit of going, can I do, how do people do that? It's sort of, you know, sit on their bikes every day, that long, that far, day in, day out. And I think, I've been, I guess I've been following it since it started, but each year it just drew me in a little bit more as an event. You start watching the dots, you start kind of meeting friends of friends, people who've done it or know somebody who's done it, and you're just like, can I? Can I? And then you find yourself on like a January evening filling in the application form going, well, I suppose the only way to find out is to enter, but I probably won't get in, will I? And then you get the email and you're in. And you go like, oh, better start like training and stuff. Um, and yeah, it's just like, see if you can, because it, it, it feels like absolutely monumentally ridiculous. But I reckon most like sort of reasonably serious cyclists probably can do it if you just focus on it. Um, but the only way to find out is to do it. So you enter and then you find yourself in Gerardsbergen with 250 other lunatics and uh, trying to see if you can get to Greece. Can I just say, I don't think you need to be serious. Yeah, I disagree with that too. <laughs> you just need to be, yeah, I think, like, I honestly think that with most of these endurance races, it's sort of like, I don't know, 70% mental, like 80% mental, and the rest is your fitness. Like, you need to have some fitness, but like, <laughs> yeah, maybe not drink Guinness every day, but, you know, I'm sure that helps too, calories, right? So how many people in the room are dot watchers? So for those who don't know, um, just because it was brought up, so when you're tracking these races, you have a GPS spot tracker, and that allows people to follow you so you can see where everybody is in real time, and it gets really, really addictive. Um, and it's pretty accurate to the point that like, when I've done races, I've had my sister call me and be like, why are you sitting in McDonald's? You don't even eat meat. And I'm like, uh. So, I mean, it's a great way to follow the races, and it's always interesting when you're doing these events because you'll see people in places and you're like, why on earth are they sitting there? Like, th there's nothing around. It makes no sense. 
but you don't know the stories and the reasons why they're there. And it's kind of when we have these talks that it's really interesting to find out what unusual places people were sleeping in, what unusual places and encounters they, they had. So on that, what's the weirdest place you slept? A tractor shop. <laughs> it was crossing a border. It was a really straight road, and it was full of, uh, what do they call them, the petrol stations? Uh, the petrol stations with hotel rooms. I think they do other business too. So I wasn't willing to stay there, and it was full of houses, uh, sorry, full of petrol stations, full of dogs, and the only place I could find to stay was around the back of a tractor shop. It was comfortable. I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a man walking past me. We looked at each other, and I went back to sleep. I think my sleeping place was pretty normal, actually, just like lots of bushes. Um, I often, I found actually with the dot watching was so, so lovely to have such support, but also your, my mother. <laughs> my mother just, just would get so terrified every single day that she would message me frantically, even though she could see my dot was moving to say, are you okay? Are you okay? So actually after a while, and when I traveled into Eastern Europe, it got, it got worse and worse actually that I ended up staying in a hotel every night just to shut her up. <laughs> And which often was a lot further than I wanted to ride or I'd run out of food, but she'd just keep messaging until I found that hotel room. Um, so I don't, I didn't, lot, yeah, lots of bushes. And even when I lied, she'd be like, I can see that you're, you're by a train line. You're not in a hotel. So I think, yeah, I think adult watching was amazing, but it's really interesting, uh, if you talk to people that the, the, your family as well kind of are, are invested in the race. And I think it's, you enter it for quite selfish reasons because you're, I want to do this, I want to ride across Europe, but I think when you go to the race, you realize actually that your your parents, your family, your friends are all kind of coming along with you, so that from, I think probably halfway through the race, um, I think my focus changed and I started to consider like my mum, my dad, etc., to where I was staying. My mom's really bad for that too. She's always like, why would you stop there if like 50 miles down the road there's a hotel? And I'm like, because it's 50 miles. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I think that's one thing that people that are, are watching your dots and they'll um, they'll let you kind of you'll get these ideas and people are like, oh, you know, it's three hundred, it's three hundred k to somewhere, but that's as the crow flies. So people are always looking at a, a straight line to a next stop, whereas obviously you're never riding in a dead straight line. Well, most of the time. Um, so I kind of def I plan to sort of sleep out a lot um, before I started and then realize that's not always an option you know sometimes you you have to stay in hotels i didn't go with a so a lot of people take a choice of how they charge their equipment they either use a dynamo to charge whilst they're riding or you kind of go without that and then you're just charging all of your equipment and taking battery packs which is really time consuming and obviously needs electricity so sleeping in a field is not always a good option um but having said that i think the weirdest place i slept was uh Checkpoint two um, was up a beautiful climb and came back down there before it was dark in a little bit of a panic. Got to an amazing hotel and realized I, I just I couldn't actually be bothered to book myself in the hotel. So I actually slept in front of the hotel on a, on a patch of grass within spitting distance of the reception. You know, it, it seemed ridiculous, but at the same time, I just run out of energy to just even go in and speak to anybody. So um, my overriding thought was just to just to sleep. So I, w I wasn't alone. There was a, about 
I don't know, 10 of us on the lawn, which now even, you know, you don't feel as stupid doing something like that when there's more people doing it. So safety in numbers. But yeah, a bit, a bit odd sleeping outside a hotel. Um, but yeah. I, I don't have any exciting stories. I, I, I stayed in a hotel every night. Uh, it's like, I like my sleep. I like a bed. I like having washing my clothes and not getting like crotch rock from a dirty chamois. Um, so I stayed in a hotel. Uh, and, I, and I guess that's more like it's, you know, everybody has to do it differently to do the, the distance. And that was my calculation. That was, that was what I needed to do. It meant I take, took less stuff. I could go ride a little bit faster every day. And it, and it kind of worked for me. Some of the hotels were a bit odd. I'm, I'm glad I didn't turn, end up in the Love Hotel that everybody seemed to end, like quite a few TCR races. I ended up in Skodra in, uh, in Albania. If you, if you look for it, you will see it. It's sort of heart shaped beds and, uh, and neon lighting. I kind of would have quite liked to. I think it would have been interesting. I was, as weird as it got was a German, ho- an Austrian hotel, which was still half being built. Um, but yeah, no, I'm afraid no exciting stories. I, th- I think a lot of people, a lot of my friends think that I just, um, when I go out and cycle, I sleep in bushes, uh, uh, to be fair, that's half the time very true. Um, it, it becomes a knack, actually. I think with, with experience, it becomes a knack that you spot places that are good to sleep, and then you make bad choices. So recently, I, um, I, cycled, I raced in Ireland, and then I, for some reason, I thought a garage forecourt would be a good place to sleep. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it is a weird one, because... I find I do that even just out on normal rides. I'm like, oh, that would be a good place to come back and sleep. And you're like, why am I going to sleep in Essex? Like, I live in London. Um, (laughs) But, so, next question. Sorry, (laughs) losing my train of thought here. Um, What was your favorite part of the race? Like, where, what road did you enjoy the most? Or, like, what climb stood out in your mind the most? Just basically that moment when you're like, this is why I'm doing this. Uh, yeah, I think um, you see you, you ride on some amazing roads, and you have a lot of kind of. Um, I'm I'm not too good with heights, um, and I hate climbing, so I picked the right event. Um, uh, so yeah, I found myself riding a lot of time just looking at the road, so I couldn't see the amazingly steep drop just to my left. <laughs> um, but having said that, I think a lot of the, I, I actually found a lot of the climbs, you know, you find a lot more motivation to just dig in and do it. So I actually found it um, a lot easier than doing the flat roads when it's really no views. It's very, very boring. Um, and I think it's probably checkpoint two which is up uh, Mangart Saddle. Which- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which is the, the highest point in Slovenia. I, I, the views at the top are well worth any of the scary climb up there. Um, I got there just at sunset, which was like a really amazing moment to get there. And just to see a storm moving in, which gave me the motivation to get down very quickly. Um, so that's probably the best climb. And then the best road was maybe um, Montenegro, which was a, somewhere I, I you know, had no idea how beautiful it was going to be. And just, you know, you kind of just look around and it's like you're riding on a movie set and you kind of forget that. It's just what you're doing now. You're riding through these stunning places. So, yeah, Montenegro is, if you've not been there, is beautiful, well worth visiting just to sort of ride some of the roads there. Absolutely stunning. I mean, I, like, if people ask me what was great about the TCR, I'd say the people and the scenery. Um, so, I like, the road in to Checkpoint 2 was amazing. But for me, I think it all comes together again in Montenegro. It's just basically from Checkpoint 4 to the finish, the route was kind of kind of obvious. Everybody basically took pretty much the same route. One guy went to Serbia, and I still don't know quite why he did that. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think to add a few more countries. Um, but So you, everybody was on the same road, and there's just this one road just after you cross the border into Montenegro, and it was basically going up a, a steep valley, like a crystal blue river at the bottom of the gorge, cut through tunnels on either side, and bridges kind of spanning across it, and just like one of the most beautiful roads you've ever done. But because everybody was kind of on the same road, you were always around people. And kind of the people at the front of the race are incredibly serious and like head down and I'm going to beat you. The people at the back are just like, I'm trying to get there and chatting and supporting one another. So it's just like this moment. I'm in beautiful scenery. I'm riding with these really interesting people and, and everybody's just really lovely. Um, and it was just great. So yeah, Montenegro. So I would also say the Bosnian checkpoint but I did it slightly differently. Everyone says how beautiful it is, what beautiful views. It's where Sarajevo had its downhill, where it had its alpine events. I did it at 12 o'clock at night. It was pitch black. I was walking, it took two and a half hours for me to walk my bike up there because it's such thick gravel, I couldn't ride my bike. I think I may have done 20 minutes out of that three hours. But it was beautiful. So it was just, it was clear skies. It was just the stars. I got to the top and there was a building that I couldn't see. Um, and it just had, it was like a window with just a shaft of light clearly coming down. That's all I could see. And then I turned around and came down, which took about an hour, occasionally walking my bike. Um, I think I still got the fastest female time <laughs> because there was no one else around me. Uh, and then I got to go to a hotel and had one of my three showers of the whole 16 days. So, yeah, that was a beautiful time. And there were nice people around. Um, so I guess it's quite hard to remember over a year ago, it's kind of 
each road. But I remember we went from checkpoint two in Italy up to, I think it's Slovenia for checkpoint three, and it was northeast, and this was this brutal headwind, and it was in a heat wave. I don't think it was as bad as this year. And I remember just wanting, to, I just didn't think I was going to make it. And I think we spent three days going northeast with this checkpoint. And it was just, I think we were going about five miles an hour with like horrendous Slovenian drivers, just almost, oh, anyway. So I got there eventually and turned the corner and we had this tailwind when I hit Romania and it was just the nicest feeling ever. I think I had 20, I think I had like 30 or 40 miles to the hotel. It was like cruising along at 30 miles an hour into a thunderstorm. I was just so happy. Um, and again, Romania, because um, I was at the back, um, everyone was telling me how scary Romania was. And I was really, really scared of Eastern Europe, which is not okay. It's just like, you know, you have these views of places you've not been. Um, so I was going into kind of Romania terrified because some people had been chased by dogs and wolves and someone apparently had been shot at. <laughs> so this had all come through. So I was absolutely terrified, but just thought it was the most beautiful country ever. Um, so I was really, really excited to have an amazing tailwind in a beautiful country. I mean, I was quite lucky um, when the race happens, I spend a week in uh, Gerensbergen, then I come back and I get to see hundreds of photographs that get taken by our fantastic photographers that are on the road. And um, this year looked really, really special. I really enjoyed seeing stuff from Poland because um, it broke a lot of people. It was really fucking steep. Um, and um, just to echo from when I've, ri when I've ridden, um, if anyone has a chance to go to Montenegro, go to Montenegro. It's absolutely stunning. It's my favorite country. I always try to get it in every year. <laughs> so I think one of the things everybody kind of secretly wants to know about these things. <laughs> no, not dogs. We all know this dogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> injuries um, and the gross stuff that happens, the lack of hygiene, the, you know, just stuff goes wrong. We all know stuff goes wrong on these races. So hygiene wise, what's the worst thing that happened to you? My butt. Um, <laughs> it wasn't pretty. By the end, I was wearing two pairs of bib shorts. It still hurt. I won't say any more. Yeah, the, the two bib shorts was probably my idea as well, I think. It's, um, it's, it's got to the, it gets to the point where every time you get off the bike, um, you then have to kind of get back on. And the first maybe mile, as soon as you hit any bump, it's like you've, you've started on raw ass again, basically. So there's a point where you just, you don't want to get off because you know you're going to get that point where you have to get back on and start from the same horrible sensation. And then you kind of, you ride into the point where you just get over it, to be honest with you. But I think, probably, I think the last couple of years it's been brutally hot whilst you've been riding. So, Riding in the heat and obviously not always being able to shower, you can you can imagine you start to get pretty grotty. And I think it was just a lot of sleeping in fields and just waking up. And I'd been bitten in places I didn't even think insects could get to, to be honest with you. Um, and then you've kind of got to deal with that as you go along. So it's um, yeah, it's not always pleasant on the hygiene side of things. And I think a lot of injuries. Um, aren't always falling off your bike or, you know, cutting your finger. Sometimes the injuries are just literally your sore in some pretty... My hands now, so I work as a mechanic, so trying to deal with picking things up when I still can't feel the ends of my fingers. Um, I think a lot of people get a, a similar thing where you, you basically damage nerves in your hand um, from just the constant vibration. Um, 
And that's just got to the point now where I kind of, obviously trying to pick up a bolt off the floor, but I can't feel a bolt. It's pretty difficult in my job. I'm hoping it gets better eventually, maybe. But yeah, that was probably the worst injury is my hands, I think. It does. You've got to get one of those like little squishy balls. Squishy balls? Yeah, yeah. squishy balls. You're fine. Whatever helps. I'll do whatever. Um, I'm quite lucky I didn't really suffer from saddle sore. I washed my chamois every night um, without fail, no matter where I was. Like even in public toilets, um, I use tea tree soap and it really, really works. It's like got an antibacterial thing in it. Um, there's one night actually I didn't and I started to get saddle, um, saddle sore the next day. So I swore by whatever I was doing, whether I was bivvying or whatever, wash my, my, I had one pair of shorts and I just put them on wet in the morning. Um, so that worked for me. I mean, everyone's different, but yeah, so I was okay. Um, I had lots of niggles at the beginning with just because I wasn't used to doing that. and didn't do enough training. Um, but I quick, I was lucky enough to, um, ride myself into it. So I think I was really, really lucky. Um, I know, I remember like Sean Kelly on the Tour de France saying, oh, oh, you know, we talked about like cab riding his way into the tour. The whole way through it, I was like, oh, I'll ride myself into this. And I did. <laughs> the last day I felt so strong and I felt like such a climber. Um, I was really sad it was over, but um, so yeah, I, I, I was yeah, so I was okay. But like, I had a, a little one of those balls which you like roll on, like for your knees and stuff, and just made sure I stretched every night. So I would add, I did transatlantic weight, and I had horrendous saddle sore. Do not pair buy a pair of sample bibs and try and do two thousand kilometers in them. So actually, I learned from that mistake, and I bought normal shorts, and I didn't have any problems with that. But I fell off my bike three times. <laughs> And that was the worst injury I had. I came off on the first night and I smashed my front arm. Like I had like macaroni cheese on my on my shin and on my arm for the first bit of time. And then three days later, I did it again, and I took it all off. Um, I just was an idiot riding on uh, bits of pavement, and I think that was probably the worst injury. And then that injured, I guess it injured a bit of my pride as well. But also my biggest fear was then, fuck, will my bike work? And then like if I have to give up on the first night, wouldn't that be embarrassing? But then it luckily the bike went round and yeah, bloody mindedness kicked in. I was like, I'm just gonna have to carry on going. Yeah, on the transatlantic way this year, my bib shorts ripped. Um, the chamois, yeah, yeah the the, the no, 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 this, this is this, I'm not telling that story. It's a different one. <laughs> Sorry, there's a there's a bad story. If you want to find out about it, you can listen to the transatlantic way debrief, which is online somewhere. Um, it's bad, but no, the uh, the chamois ripped in half, so my sit bones were directly on the saddle, and that was not good. I finished, yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, I think we should like from our side end on an up. So if anyone wants to have like a positive thing for anyone, I would say um, finishing it. If you do do something like this, remember to allow your time to, some time to adapt back into your life. Um, I hit the party train, and I have done for about a year. Um, so I've been boozing quite a lot. <laughs> um, so when, I think I've, I took so bloody long. My bike just kept breaking, and I was pretty sh- well, I got there eventually. Um, and I, fin- I think I finished, uh, got back into Gatwick, like Tuesday evening, and was straight back in work Wednesday at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m., um, straight back on that and I work again work in the cycling uh, industry so I was so lucky everyone was like oh you've just done it oh it's amazing um, I was just high on life and just tried to do everything a million miles an hour 
Um, and it's just taken me a long time to recover. I think I feel better about now. <laughs> um, so I think if you, if you do do it, um, and I think everyone probably echoes this, just allow yourself time to not ride and just chill. Um, but it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd say same thing. I kind of, I, I got to the finish line absolutely amazed I'd done it. Um, just missed the party uh, that's arranged at the end by a few hours. Um, and and then uh, panic set in that I didn't actually know how I was going to get home because I hadn't arranged any flights. I hadn't arranged a bike box to fly my bike home in. Um, I had no spare clothes other than um, bib shorts and like a thermal vest. And, and that's how I traveled back through Gatwick, um, getting some seriously odd looks. And normally that thing would really embarrass me and, you know, I'd be mortally sort of wounded by people staring at me. But I'd say, if anything, Transcon's taught me, you know, you end up doing some really weird stuff you'd never do in some really weird situations. And, you know, I've kind of got over that really quickly. And um, I flew back and I was like quite happy to sort of fly back with my Transcon hat on in my bib shorts, um, just walking through quite proudly. And I'd say, yeah, I got back and I, I went from Gatwick Airport to Croydon. And then I had an amazing... Uh, bike ride. I, I built my bike at Croydon train station and rode back to Tooting um, and it's made me realise that actually that's the most dangerous part of the journey was the Croydon <laughs> I said it joking but it seriously was. I think that was the worst part of my ride. It, or even, even, even people moan about how bad it was in Bosnia. Croydon to Tooting, worst ride ever. So it's made me yeah, realise riding's beautiful elsewhere so travel more is one thing. Just from a positivity point of view, I think people need to, um, who experienced the race and who've ridden it, and it was for me when I did it a few years back, was that um, it really opens your eyes up to how amazing uh, people are everywhere when they've got nothing and they're still inquisitive and they want to talk to you and they want to help you and you just have a, um, a lot of positive encounters with people that initially you find quite alarming, especially if you live in London and everyone's out to get you. You, you're in the middle of Bosnia and someone's like, oh, how much does your bike cost? And you think they want to steal it. They just want to know because, you know, and, oh, have you got somewhere to stay? Have you got food? Let me get some, let me get, let me get a drink. You sit down, have this food. And it just opens you up to actually, we're all the same. We might not speak the same language. We might not be in the same country, but people just want to be nice. And sometimes it's nice to be nice. And when I left and came home, I, you know, it opened my mind up to a lot of stuff. It was good. Um, I completely echo that that uh, that thing about people. One of my one of my memories is is so about seventy eighty kilometers from the end. Went to a pizza place. It was just like I need the fuel to get to the finish. And it was just like I'll have a pizza, please. And just like, Great. And then the guys like, so what are you doing? Why the why the hell are you in the middle of Greece at like eleven in the evening on a bike? Where are you going? And it's oh, you start telling your story. So he brings some chips as well. No cost. Oh, and I'll, don't worry about the cost of the drinks. And it brings a bloody dessert pizza, and I'm full. And it's just like, and I've like got this guilty thing that I've got to eat the goddamn pizza because I, otherwise I feel like I'm sort of being rude to him. But I can't eat anything more. But it's just like being really nice to me. So yeah, just like people were amazing. The other thing for me is like, if you ever do it, I set up a WhatsApp group of all of my friends, and it's just like, you know, send me messages, send me encouragement, and if you think I'm doing crazy stuff like dangerous, tell me, try and tell me to stop. I had this like really weird collection of my my mum, a whole lot of people I was at university with, people I ride bikes with, 
work colleagues, and they got a bit out of hand. <laughs> I think they managed eight thousand messages during the during the TCR, and they got they got a bit like sort of they digressed a bit. So it's like <laughs> I'd be heading towards a town, and they'd like digress. Oh, you're heading towards Berno. Uh, there's some interesting chair designers from Berno. Can you like pick one up while you're there or something? But it was like it was brilliant because it was just like gave this like connection back to humanity and to to people, um, and also that like there's lots of people I know who actually get on with one another. And then the third thing I'm going to say, I did it. I raised said I'm raising money for charity, and I raised eight grand for Cancer Research UK, which was brilliant. I'll put the link on my Instagram account if you want to donate. Plug <laughs> plug. Yeah, I think that is one of the most amazing things about these kind of races. It. I think there's a vulnerability when you're traveling by bike. People don't see you as a threat. They see you sort of as just another person traveling through and, and as vulnerable, and they want to help you. I think on every big ride I've ever done, I've had so many people offer to help me and want to give me food and drinks and whatever. And it's, it is a really nice thing because I find when you come back into the city and back to real life, it does carry through. I find myself talking to random people all the time. They think I'm crazy, but like, it's quite a nice thing to just have that conversation or say hello or just, you know, speak to the person in line next to you that you see every day. Um, and I think that's kind of the things that it does teach you is that most people are good and it's okay to engage with each other, um, which I think we sort of sometimes forget in London a little bit. On that note, we're going to open it up to questions. I'm sure lots of you have questions and are tired of listening to me ramble. Hi, friends. I'm afraid you can't hear the Q&A because we had technical difficulties, weirdly, the minute that we started that section. So that's where this ends. We ask that if you are able to please kindly support Anna Haslock's Just Giving page. I'm going to put a link below. She is raising money to go to Australia to be present at the inquest into the death of Mike Hall. Anna is the race director for the Transcontinental Race, having taken over the role when Mike died. You can read more about Mike Hall if you're not aware. Again, I'll put a link below. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again to all our guests and Laura Scott for hosting. And if you like what we do, don't forget to comment. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to rate. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you know somebody that likes cycling and podcasts, recommend our show. It means a lot. Until next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.